Well, Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Whenever we do communion, it messes up my table situation. I feel like I need to set my Bible down right now. Then I would have to get up to do it. I just feel like I should acknowledge that I feel a little awkward right now, you know. Um, Luke chapter 14, we're still in the lectionary. Most of you probably know we're staying in the lectionary following this kind of church calendar that many high church, um, high church traditions follow. Um, we're, we're participating with thousands of Christians, probably millions of Christians all over the world who are studying and reading these texts. And we're doing that until we get to September 25th when we start our storied church emphasis. I'm just giving up calling it a series. It is a church emphasis. We're, we're moving the whole church. We're focusing on this. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. Um, it's going to be awesome. Make sure that you have it on your calendars. Today we're in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to do something weird because that's what the lectionary tells us to do. We're going to read verse 1 of Luke 14, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 7 through 14. So just be prepared. We're going to skip some verses, but we're reading verse 1 just to kind of get the physical context for the rest of the story. All right? Cool. All right? Hey, there we go. All right. Luke chapter 14 and verse 1, it says this. One Sabbath. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Then in verse 7, when he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said this to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word that is always true and applicable that is always useful to teach and to rebuke and to correct and to encourage. And God, we ask this morning, as we always do, that you would speak. We are here to hear from your word and to hear your truth. So God, if there's anything that's just my ideas or perspectives, let it be revealed so that it can be rejected. But let what is from you sink deeply into our hearts so that we would be formed in your likeness. So that the only name that matters today is the name of Jesus. We love you. Amen. Uh, this won't be a surprise to most of you, but I am a fairly competitive person. Um, I, like, it gets me in trouble sometimes because I'm the type of person that like, I don't really like to play if there's not a reasonable chance that I'm going to win. Um, and I, I know some of you are thinking, well, CJ, why don't you just play for fun? That's why I want to win because winning is fun. Like, there are a lot of reasons why I would play a game that I have no chance of winning at, like to be a good team player, to kill time for the relationships, but fun is not one of them, right? Um, 
And this has become more of a problem as I've become a dad. I've got a six-year-old son now, so we play games together now. And I feel like as a dad, I am supposed to let him win sometimes, you know, so that he doesn't hate playing games with me for the rest of his life and have to go to counseling later about it or something. But it's such a hard thing for me to do, honestly. It is so hard for me to let the kid win. Um, And when I do or when he accidentally, like, accidentally wins sometimes... Um, I always feel the need to like say to the whole house, I have to fight this urge to be like, well, you got to let him win sometimes just so like Jen and the dogs know that he didn't really beat me, you know, that I let him win. Um, but we've got, we've got a game because we've got games nowadays are, you know, trying to teach healthy things like everything's not a competition, um, which is hard for me. Uh, so we've got a game in our house that Josie really likes. It's called count your chickens. Any of the parents played count your chickens? Okay, a couple of them. All right, awesome. The most competitive people in the room have played Count Your Chickens, a game in which you cannot win. You play the game Count Your Chickens. Here's how it works. You, you spin the thing and you go through the board so that you can, as a team, save as many chickens as possible from the fox and get them into the hen house. And then when you're done, you're done because nobody wins. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the whole point of the game. The game's over now. We did it. We spent some time together, which I guess is like a reasonable thing to do as a family. But I always count who contributed the most chickens to the hen house. Because even though the game doesn't pick a winner, I know who won. Yeah. But do you remember like in the good old days of games? Do you remember the games that would like end a family's relationship like Monopoly? <laughs> like... I mean, God is going to hold Hasbro games accountable for what they did to the American family with that game. I was thinking this week about a game that we used to play when I was a kid. Do you guys remember the game of life? In which the whole premise of the game is that you could lose at life. (laughs) Like, you can lose at life. And through the game, you follow basically prompts and make decisions that sort of reflect the decisions you can make in life. And how do you win? You have the most money at the end of the game. Like you, ha- you acquire the most things and then you win the game. Like America. Like this is, this is it. <laughs> and I was thinking about that this week and just, I, it hit me that in our world, and when I say world here, I don't mean like the Christian-y, like the world, like those other people. I mean like humans, human beings in our world, all of us. Kind of our, our natural default setting is for our primary goals to be based on position. We want to be able to evaluate. We like for there to be winners and losers. And, and I don't mean this in in the sense of games and prizes and competitions. I mean this in the sense that in our life, we tend to evaluate ourselves based on what position that we're in, whether that's the, the job, the position in our job, whether we have moved up the ranks at our job in a way that reflects our skill set and how we should and how other people our age and with our education have done. Or, or more likely, we just evaluate our position in life, The interesting thing about evaluating based on position is that it only matters if there are people to compare yourself against. Because if you're the only one, then you obviously have the best position. So for us to evaluate ourselves, we have to be able to say, well, I'm ahead of these people and I'm behind these people. But we look at our life and we say, well, all my friends are getting married and I'm still single. Or we say, well, you know what? Most people my age are in their career. You know, and they've acquired like two weeks of vacation and they've, they've got this much invested by now. Or most people in my situation have bought a house. 
Most people in my situation have started a family yet. And we evaluate our positions in life. This is so common. It's so evident in our culture that there is a trope. It is a joke now that's commonly made to talk about the anxiety we feel when we post something on social media, wondering whether it's going to get enough likes or not, which is completely comparison. Right, That's completely evaluating based on position because if I just took a picture and thought of something witty to say and I showed it to my five of my friends and they chuckled, I'd feel great about it. But if I post it on social media and it doesn't get a certain number of likes compared to other people that I follow, then I don't feel so great about it. And we do this in various areas of life. There are square footage amounts that kind of represent a good position in life for our stage of life. And there are monthly and yearly incomes that represent a good position in life based on our our state in life. And usually those numbers are not evaluated based on what we need or based on our financial goals. They're just based on what we think someone like us should be doing or we're based on whether we're ahead or behind the curve. One of the things that's really funny to me about this is that we, we even have, you know, we've got a square footage amount, we've got owning a house, we've got you know, how old of a car you should drive if you're in this stage, if you're a professional or if you're in your 30s or if you're in your late 20s. And then we've got phrases that we have come up with because if we don't live up to the position that we should be in life, then we've got phrases that help soften that. So we'll say things like, well, yeah, I know it's a really old car, but we're, we're paying off debt right now so that we can buy the car we want. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with driving an old car so that you can pay off debt for the record. I just think it's funny that we feel like we have to say things about it. That at times we feel like we've got to defend the car. Or we say, people come over to our house. Jen and I had um, a bunch of parents from Josie's soccer team over to our house um, and in May. And I found myself thinking as those parents were coming over, I wonder... I wonder what they're going to think of the house. I wonder what they're going to think of the neighborhood that we live in. I wonder, you know, we're all the same age. We've got the same age kids. I wonder how we measure up. And then we find up saying, wind up saying things like, uh, well, this is just a starter home. You know, we really like it right now, but we're planning to move up in a few years. Which, once again, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having a starter home. That's a great goal. And to, to move up, if you want to set goals of what kind of house would fit your family and your needs, praise the Lord for that. But I think it's really interesting and really informative the way that we feel like we have to explain things. We feel like we have to defend our position in life. Because position always requires other people. For me to evaluate myself based on position, I have to be able to say, well, I'm doing better than them or I'm not doing as good as they are. I have more honor. I have more respect. I've got more money. I've got whatever. So you can see how that works. You can see how that plays out in our life. That if we're on the high side of the position, it's very, very hard to function without a degree of condescension for those behind us because we made the right decisions. We did it right. We win. We're doing better than the curve for our age. But if we're behind, if we're not living up to whatever the expected position of people in our situation is, then it's really hard to function without anxiety really hard to function without negative feelings towards ourself, without comparing ourselves and taking on fear and shame. See, this is what Jesus is interacting with 
in this story, which for the record, I know we can't like say that Jesus is annoying, but this seems really on the nose of me for Jesus. He's at a party where people are choosing their seats. And then he says, well, there was a wedding banquet and you definitely shouldn't pick that seat. Like to the people as they're doing it. I mean, that's kind of on the nose. Jesus isn't being subtle. He's calling the people out. Um, and, and it seems like at first blush, now th- these people are, are coming to the banquet, and in this culture there are places of honor at the table. A good way to think of this, because a lot of times we don't necessarily have places of honor or respect at, at our dinner tables, but a good way to think of this might be like a modern wedding. There are specific seats that are reserved for family, for people that are close, for people that have special relationship to the bride and groom. Those people might be standing, those people might be sitting in the family seats, and then there's the rest of the seats. Well, at a dinner table in this era, there were places of honor based on your relationship to the host, based on your status in society. So Jesus is observing people that come in and they're choosing based on their own self-evaluation what seat they think they should get at the table. They're evaluating their position based on everyone else in the room and based on the host. Now it could seem like What Jesus is doing here is just giving good social advice that he's trying to get you to avoid an awkward situation because this is very good advice for the record. It's very good advice to not put yourself in a place socially where you're going to accidentally be shamed in front of everybody. That's just good social consciousness. It it seems at first blush like maybe this is what Jesus is doing. In fact, there are some um, commentators on this who call these interactions Jesus's table wisdom. They'll say that these are times where Jesus sits around the table. All throughout scripture, table is a metaphor. We've got the, the, in the resurrection, the wedding supper of the lamb. We've got the communion table. We've got tables in these parables. In Psalm 23, the Lord prepares a table before me. It's a theme in scripture. And it's helpful to think of this as a specific time and place because usually when we see Jesus sitting around a table talking, something specific is happening. But it doesn't help us very much to think of this as just wisdom. Because this isn't just good advice. The, the context of this story is Jesus being invited over to the Pharisee's house where he is being closely watched. He's being heavily scrutinized. The phrasing there is the same phrasing in other places in the New Testament where it says they were watching him to trap him. Or they were scrutinizing him. They were trying to catch Jesus in a falsehood. They were trying to catch Jesus breaking the law. So I find it very hard to believe that Jesus went over to their house, realized he was being highly scrutinized, and then decided to just downplay and give people good advice. I think maybe he was commenting on a deeper reality here. I think maybe he was commenting on the fact that in our world as humans... Our default setting is to evaluate ourselves, is to set our goals based on position. Now, what's more interesting about that is at this point in history, the Pharisees represent a resurgence or a revival of the rules. The Pharisees represent a social movement and a religious movement that is more, maybe more deeply committed to religious affiliation and to living within the laws of God than at any point in history, at least any point in memorable history. These people were extremists. They were people who defined themselves and identified themselves based on the rules and based on the laws of God. I think maybe what Jesus is saying is that one of the most consistent struggles or temptations or pitfalls that we face throughout Scripture and now as people, as people of God 
is to allow our faith to change the rules of our life, but not the goals of our life. We'll allow our faith to change what we do on Sundays, what we do on the internet, maybe even how we spend our money, or at least 10% of it. But we won't necessarily let our faith change the things that we're seeking in life or change the way we're evaluating ourselves. You know, these were people who were deeply committed to the law, people who lived under the rule of the law. Like I said, it represented a revival or a resurgence of commitment to the law in history. But in those laws, one of the consistent patterns, one of the consistent themes is to give specific position or place to the poor and to the outcast and to those who have no place in society. Throughout God's law, special place, even preferential place is given to the downtrodden, to the outcast, poor, lame, foreigner. And one of the the consistent themes when God gives these instructions is for him to say it like this. You are to make place for the foreigner among you because you were foreigners. You are to make place for the poor among you. You are not to take advantage of a slave or a servant because do you remember you were slaves and servants? See, there's this distinct affirmation throughout the law that the position that you have is a position that you've received, and it's a position that you are to use for the sake of others. It's not a position that is meant to build you up in life. It's not a position that's meant to evaluate, because do you remember who you used to be until I gave it to you? This is the pattern of Scripture. I think we can probably imagine, at least for me in my own life, how often we will allow the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, to change our rules, but to not necessarily change our goals. We'll let it change the things we don't do, but then we still pursue position. And that gets really messy. When I start evaluating myself based on my position, let's say, in my faith, You remember every time I evaluate based on position, there have to be people behind me and there have to be people in front of me for it to make sense. So if there's somebody who's struggling with something I don't struggle with, or maybe somebody who's struggling with something I used to struggle with, well then all of a sudden I've got a better position than they do. And I might find this temptation to look back on them with condescension because I have earned some sort of status or honor or special seat I might look at someone who has a certain reputation or a certain position in the church or a certain following on social media and then begin to assume that they've got some special position before the Lord. Or I might, not, I might look at someone that I don't know their background or their experience and assume that because of the position they have or because of the spiritual expression in their life that they are somehow ahead of me in position and I am behind. And I will disqualify myself without knowledge because I'm evaluating myself based on position. See, I think this is, is the soil in which church celebrity culture grows. I think this is the soil in which legalism and judgment grows. I think this is the soil in which so many things in which we evaluate ourselves and other people based on position, and then we cast judgment or we receive shame. I think this is where it grows. And you can imagine, once again, what happens when we let our faith change the rules of our life, and then we imagine that our faith affects all of our life but our faith doesn't change the goals of life. Because then we might start to think that because I got a promotion at work, it's because I've got a position in faith. Now listen, I think God cares about your promotion, 
But I don't think if you're making six figures, you've got a better position before the Lord than someone who's making four. But you see how that seeps into our thinking as we begin to evaluate our lives based on position and then we can inadvertently evaluate our spiritual position based on our physical position in the world. We can feel like we have some sort of intimacy with God or place before the Lord because we're successful that other people don't. That always winds up leaving someone out or leaving myself out. But then Jesus keeps talking. Once again, Jesus is very on the nose. He's not being subtle. This seems like kind of a that guy move because he's talking to the guests about how they shouldn't pick the chairs they're picking. And then he turns to the host and tells him how he's throwing a party wrong, basically. And Jesus says, when you throw, when you throw a banquet, for the record, the, the Greek there is probably best translated, when you throw a banquet, don't always, not when you throw a banquet, don't. Jesus isn't giving party advice. He's teaching a principle, okay? He's not telling you the only way you're allowed to invite people to your house. It's a principle, but he says, when you throw a banquet, don't invite people who can affirm your position. Don't look for people who can tell you how good you are. Don't look for people who are going to increase your position because of their position so that when they invite you over, you can get the seat of honor. Don't evaluate your banquet based on position. No, evaluate, invite people who can't repay you. Invite people who have no position in society. Invite people who cannot repay you in any way, and then you will be blessed. You might remember, because we talk about this a lot at the fold, blessing does not mean God gave you something. It means God's doing something through you. So Jesus is saying you will be blessed. In other words, if you are opening up your home to those of no position, then you will be a person through which the kingdom of God is coming. You will be blessed. And then he says something interesting. He says, they can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now, once again, it could be tempting here for us to imagine that when we get to eternity with God, that there's going to be our door prize waiting for us. The, the things that we do in this earth are going to somehow like represent honor or a special seat at the table in eternity. And listen, there is conversation in scripture about reward and how that plays out in eternity. I don't claim to have a tight theology on what that looks like. What I do know is that throughout scripture, the people that are given special places at the table in the resurrection are people who were like martyred and suffered for the kingdom. So if anybody has the special seats in the resurrection, we're going to look at them and be like, yeah, they deserve it because I don't want their life. The, every once in a while in Greek, there are words that just don't translate very well to English. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, but I have learned how to study specific words. And as I was looking this week, uh, I realized some of the words that are the most complicated because of different thought patterns and different culture um, are prepositions in Greek. They're, they're, they're words that represent place or location. And in English, what we read is, you will be repaid at the resurrection. But in Greek, the description, the definition in the original, um, in the original uh, lexicon for the word at is about four pages long. It's used thousands of times in the New Testament. 1,900 of those times, it is translated in, not at. And then second, it is translated by, not at. And then third, it is translated with, not at. And then sometimes it is translated among. And then fifth, I believe, in the line, it is translated at. 
It's a complicated word. And once again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not here to tell you exactly what's going on here, but I am here to tell you that it is much more likely that Jesus is saying, you won't be rewarded by these people. Instead, your reward will come within and, at, within and by the resurrection. In other words, your reward is being there. Do you see the difference? In other words, the resurrection itself in the reward, your reward is in the resurrection. Your reward is the fact that you get to be there. Why? Because the world evaluates self, sets goals based on position. But in the kingdom of God, the goal is presence, not position. The goal is being there. The goal is being there with the the Lord. The goal in life is presence. The goal is to be reconciled to God and to be able to live in communion with him. Why do we fight against sin and wrestle against sin in our life? Because in that we gain intimacy with the Lord. We are removing things from our life that separate us from him. We are experiencing more of his presence. The evaluation of your life, if you die successful in your relationship with God, as a human being reconciled to God, you will die knowing his presence, not evaluating your position. Because the goal of the kingdom is presence. But the goal of the world is position. Do you see how this changes everything? You see how this changes the way I look at someone who struggles with the things I used to look at? I used to struggle with? Because I'm not in a better position than them. I'm in the same person's presence as they are. I just want them to move a little closer. Because there's nothing special about my position. The goal is just presence. You see how this changes the goals in life so that I'm now evaluating myself based on response to God's calling, not based on what I can flex or show off or reveal to the world around us about my accomplishments? Do you see how this shows that if you drive a Lexus, awesome, and if you drive a 20-year-old Subaru, awesome, because the goal is presence. We're not evaluating one another based on our accomplishments on earth. Our goal is presence. So we're ending with communion this morning. Because in a sermon like this, it's, it's hard to give you just practical application. It's not very reasonable to say, here are five things you can do to gain presence. Because you already live, if you're forgiven, in the presence of God. You are already welcomed to the table. And in the table of Jesus, we all have the same seat. We all have the same position. The right way for us to respond is to remember that we are welcome and invited to the table of Jesus. The right way to respond is to, through this sacred act that for 2,000 years followers of Jesus have participated in, in which we physically, with our taste and with our smell and with our touch, we remember that Jesus bought our seat at the table and he gave it to us freely so that we all have the same place at the table of Jesus. So today, you might find yourself coming to the table and you know you have started to feel like you're surpassing your position in life. And you've found yourself giving in to that temptation of looking at other people with condescension, of looking down on other people who are different, who believe different things, who maybe are reading different books. Maybe they're just not listening to the preachers that you think are cool. Or they're not reading the books that you think are scholarly yet. I struggle with this one. And you've begun to see that you've, you've started to believe that you've earned a better position at the table. 
So when you taste the bread and the juice today, you need to be reminded that you have the same seat and ask the Lord to give you humility. But maybe today, you're here and your temptation is to believe that you don't even deserve a seat at the table. That you're so far behind. You're so far, you're not living up to the expectations in life. You're continuing to struggle with sin or you're just, you're just outclassed. You just can't, you can't keep up with the positions people expect of you. And you need to come to the table and be reminded that you have the same seat as everyone else. That the same blood bought your seat that bought everyone else's seat that will be there. That you have the same position. So this is my only response, my only application besides taking communion this week. I want to give you a simple prayer. For much of church history, Christians have taken the prayers of scripture and the prayers of other believers and used those as a way to focus our minds. So as you respond in communion today, in a moment after we bless the elements, if you find yourself struggling with pride this morning, coming to the table, elevating your position, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. You can pray it in a breath as you take communion. I want you to pray, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in so doing, remind yourself that we all need the same mercy. But if you're here today and you've been falling into anxiety and shame, that's your temptation. I want to invite you to pray those words with a slight change. I want to invite you to pray, Jesus Christ, Son of God, you have already had mercy on me, a sinner. Because you need to be reminded that the same mercy has already been given to you. And you have the same place at the table as everyone else at the table. So on the night Christ was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. After giving thanks, he said, this is my body, broken for you. When you eat, do so in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after giving thanks, and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for the salvation of many. Every time you drink, do so in remembrance of me. As we take communion this morning, we will be taking by intention. Every option in the front is gluten-free. So you can take the bread, dip it in the juice, and consume both together. If you would prefer, in the back, we have individually wrapped communion elements. If that would be more comfortable for you, those are not gluten-free, unfortunately. But that is available for anyone who's interested or who would prefer that. As we take communion today, we take communion remembering the table of Jesus and our seat that we all share in the same presence. As we begin worship and Jack and Caroline begin to play, you are welcome to come receive communion whenever you feel comfortable. Jesus, we love you. We praise you for your presence. We praise you that we can be present. God, we praise you that there is no higher position or better place at your table. God, remind us that it was the same blood, the same cost, that brought us all to the same position before you. That we could receive your grace and your comfort. Embrace your love. And reject the comparison and evaluation that causes pride and anxiety. Let us be a community that is unified in your love and in your presence. Amen. Amen.